0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, I'm grateful, and I pray that each one today is grateful for the reminder that we have received. It is a a proper and a needful reminder that we are to be a people of faith. We are to be a people who have our hearts and our minds set on the truth of our God, the truth of his purposes, the truth of his work, the truth of his power in accomplishing all that he designs. It is so true that we we get distracted in many ways. Just as God said to Israel, through the prophet Isaiah, stop looking anxiously about you and know that I am he, the Holy One of Israel. Father, truly, our our testimony of faith resides in that confidence that we have in you. And I pray that it would be so. I pray that you would encourage us in this time of consideration today as we Even look at your servant Jacob and the way that he passed from this life with his eyes set on something that he couldn't see, something that he couldn't fully discern. But nonetheless, he was fully assured, fully resolved that his God would prove faithful. And I pray that it would be so with us. Bless us in this time. Meet each one according to his faith, according to his need, according to his weakness, according to his struggle. Encourage each one for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, Chris is leading this morning is a good reminder because as we continue to move through Hebrews chapter 11, it's critical that we do recognize that faith is just not an abstract arbitrary thing faith is not just trusting god for what we think he ought to do for what we think we would like him to do for what we have some kind of personal or or uh, ethical expectation for the world or for ourselves faith in the biblical sense is is a discernment of and a settled conviction of The God who is faithful to what he has said, what he has promised, what he has purposed, what he is doing. And as the writer builds this roll call of faith and keeps moving through, that's really the, the centerpiece in each case. These were individuals who at their own place in time, at their own level of understanding where they were in the salvation history, these are each people who lived their lives trusting that the God who had promised would be faithful. He would do what he had said he would do. In spite of what their own lives looked like, in spite of their own experiences, in, in spite of all that seemed to argue against the possibility of God doing what he said, they trusted him. They trusted him. Well, as we continue to move forward, uh, the writer is very much following the Genesis uh, narrative, as I've said so many times moving through this. And, And he's going through the patriarchs, Abraham, then Isaac, and now Jacob. And if it seems like we're kind of going very, very slowly and focusing on each of these individuals, it's because it is important to see what exactly the writer is trying to get at with each of these individuals. In, in the case of, of um, Isaac, and in the case of Jacob, and really even in the case of, of Joseph, the writer gives them one verse, one basically one statement. But in writing to a Jewish audience, he understands that they have a whole context for understanding what it is that he's saying. And so to me, it's important for us to try to get behind the statement, to see the significance of the point that he's making and, and why these individuals are singled out and what specifically about them is being singled out as signaling, as testifying to their faith. So beginning then at, at, at verse 17, and then we'll just, just to again set the context with Abraham move forward. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up the monogamous, the only begotten. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. They shall be reckoned, they shall be counted. And he considered that God is able to raise men even back from the dead. Abraham, that is, considered that God is able to raise even from the dead, from which also he received Isaac back in a figure. And so also by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, his two sons, even regarding things to come. So also by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. So the writer is moving through the covenant patriarchs, Abraham, then the first covenant heir, Isaac, now the second covenant heir, Jacob. And at the center of that promise is that God would give to Abraham. At the heart of the Abrahamic promise was the promise that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. And not just the father of a people, but of Raham, the father of many people. Abram became Abraham, the father of many peoples, the father of a multitude of nations. God made that promise to Abraham. He passed that promise along to Isaac. God reaffirmed that promise to Isaac. If you read through the Genesis narrative. But it was in Jacob that that promise began to be realized. As Jacob had 12 sons who went on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. It was in Jacob. Jacob himself becomes the man Israel. Yisrael, he prevails with God, or God prevails, both of which were true. In Genesis 32, you see that episode, the wrestling, the man wrestling with with um, Jacob. You are now Israel, and the man Israel becomes the progenitor of the nation of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, out of Jacob comes this great nation that God promised to Abraham. So once Jacob is introduced into the Genesis narrative, he's the focal point of Genesis from that point forward. And even more in a very real way, Jacob is the focus of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures because he is the very essence. He's the root. He's the substance of Israel itself. Israel being the subject of the rest of the scriptures up until the coming of the Messiah. So it's in Jacob that the Abrahamic promise of a multitude of sons and daughters that Abram would be the father of a vast family. It's in Jacob that that begins to take place. And just as Isaac, God saw to it that Isaac, as he becomes old, as it's time for him to pass on the the covenant blessing, to pass the baton, as it were, to the next covenant heir of the next generation, God sees to it that that blessing passes to Jacob rather than to Esau. So now as Jacob becomes an old man, he too... Feels the need, even covenantally, to pass on his blessing to his sons, to his twelve sons. That blessing is recorded in Genesis chapter forty nine. But what I want you to note is that the writer, in talking about Abraham or um, Jacob's faith in passing along the blessing, he doesn't mention the fact of him blessing his 12 sons. In faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. Once again, there are many things that the writer could have pointed to to demonstrate Jacob's faith. He chooses to point specifically to Jacob blessing Joseph's sons. Well, that's recorded for us in Genesis 48. And that's the context for understanding what the Hebrews writer is getting at. And so that's where I want to begin. I mean, certainly From my point of view, as I read this, if, if it were up to me to guess ahead of time what the writer would point to, the Hebrews writer, if he was going to mention this blessing coming to the sons of Jacob, my mind would immediately go to Judah. Because the emphasis of the epistle is very much on the orientation of God towards the coming of the Messiah and the accomplishment of the work of God in the Messiah. Well, we know that Judah is the one who is the forbearer of the Messiah. In the blessing of the sons in Genesis 49, that's the way in which Judah is distinguished. He actually is set out as preeminent. In a sense, Reuben is firstborn, then Simeon, then Levi, but in the blessing of those men, they are discounted and in a certain way disqualified. The preeminence in the blessing of the sons really rests on the fourth son, who is Judah. And I would have expected the Hebrews writer to focus on that, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And when we see these things, saints, we should say, why? Why? I mean, it doesn't have to be the way we think it should be, but there's a reason that the writer focused this testimony of Jacob's faith on the blessing of, of Joseph's sons. Why does he do that? Well, the account again is in chapter 48 of Genesis. If you want to flip there, I'm just going to read the beginning of it, but but And I know I say this all the time, but as you go through this roll call of faith, and even as you go through anything in the New Testament, you should always be going back and looking at it through the lens of the salvation history, the the, the way in which these things are fleshed out in the Old Testament. And certainly in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we should be going back and looking at the things that the writer is pointing out. So in Genesis 48... The writer says it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. Now, let me actually back up a little bit because the after these things has to do with Jacob's charge to Joseph to not let his remains stay in Egypt. See to it, Joseph, my son, that when I die, as I'm coming to the end of my life, that I am buried in the cave of the field at Machpelah with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac, my father. Verse 28 of 47 says, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. We all know that Jacob and all of the family have now come down to Egypt as Joseph has made himself known to his brothers during this time of famine. And when the time for Israel, who is Jacob, to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. This is a, like, like, like a taking of an oath, binding yourself to something. And deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. So Joseph swore to him, and then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. After these things, then Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And when it was told to Jacob behold your son Joseph has come to you Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed Now note that Jacob didn't even call for Joseph he's Joseph just hears his father is ill and he goes to see him But this becomes the occasion providentially for the blessing of these boys And Jacob said to Joseph God almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, here's again, at the heart of the covenant oath, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. See, Jacob isn't just saying, look, I want to go back to my hometown. I don't want to be buried here. This is covenantal significance. God's pledge to Jacob to give him this land as he pledged it to Abraham, as he pledged it to Isaac. And Jacob says, let me rest in the land that God has pledged to me when I die. But also that God promised that he would make me a company of peoples. These things are important, saints. The way this is recorded for us is to make us think about, okay, why is this being emphasized? Why is this being brought out? Why is the story being built the way it is? Jacob continues, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, those sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now, Israel sees Joseph's sons, but his eyes are not very good. You know, his sight isn't good. And he says, whose are these or who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim, Israel is Jacob, from age that he could not see. Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Reminiscent of Jacob and Esau. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to put it onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father, Jacob, refused and said, I know my son, I know. And he shall also become a people, and he shall also be great. However, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and the descendants, his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel shall by you Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Now, after that, you have Jacob summoning his sons, including Joseph and blessing each one of them. So the, as we look at this account, the first thing that stands out with it is that this blessing that comes to Joseph's sons comes to them as being Jacob's sons. They come to him, they come to those boys, This bless these blessings, as being Jacob's sons. Not his grandsons, his sons. He blessed them just as he would his own 12 sons, of whom Joseph was one. But he blesses these two boys as his own sons. He says to Joseph, they are not your sons, they are my sons. Just as Simeon is my son, the firstborn, just as Reuben is my son, they are my sons. So the blessing comes to them as sons of Jacob, as sons of Jacob. And Ephraim and Manasseh enjoyed a kind of preeminence by virtue of their blessing coming before Jacob. In a sense, Jacob has said, you're my sons and my blessing comes to you first. Then it goes to my 12 other sons. So Joseph and his two sons has this preeminence by virtue of blessing. But even more than that, and we'll look at a couple verses that show that, it's not just that Jacob blesses these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph, as being his own sons, but he blesses them as his firstborn sons. If you look at 1 Chronicles 5, it begins this way. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Reuben was the firstborn. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. The sons of Israel or to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came the leader, yet the birthright, and it's talking about the king in Israel, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Joseph in the form of his two sons. So Reuben is supplanted, and you see this in the blessing that comes in chapter 49. In a sense, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are all set aside in a sense. Judah has the preeminence, but even above him sits Joseph in in the two sons born to him. So Joseph obtains both the birthright and a double portion in the covenant promise. And you say, how does that work? Jacob had 12 sons. Aren't there 12 tribes in Israel? Yes. But Levi wasn't reckoned among the 12 tribes because they were the priestly tribe. Levi was holy to the Lord. Levi was set apart to the Lord. There was no land inheritance. So Levi wasn't reckoned as among the tribes of Israel in that sense. So Joseph gets two tribal inheritances. Israel, the 12 tribes, are reckoned with Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how Joseph is reckoned among the 12 tribes of Israel. He gets a double portion, and we read that even in, in chapter 28. Now, jo- Jacob is saying all of this as it yet still lies out in the future. Right? This hasn't happened yet but he's establishing as he looks in a way that we're not in exactly sure what he understood or or how he had come to understand these things, but he's blessing these boys with a view to the future, the role that they will play in Israel's life. And just as had been the case in Jacob's own experience, uh, he reverses the natural order. He takes the firstborn blessing from Manasseh and gives it to the younger, to Ephraim. He imparts it to Ephraim. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? Well, stepping back again, what what is faith? Faith is this ownership of the purposes of God, whether or not we fully understand them, whether or not we know how they're going to play out. But what God has revealed that he's going to do bound up in the Messiah himself, ultimately. That's what faith is about. And the writer says that faith is this capacity to, to perceive as real and present that which isn't present, that which isn't real in our experience. Faith gives present existence, present substance to that which isn't present, that which is hoped for. And faith is the most faith, it is the most truly faith, the more unlikely, the more impossible the outcome that is trusted and believed. The great example of Abraham's faith was what? He had to believe God for two things that couldn't be reconciled. All of my covenant faithfulness towards you is bound up in this boy Isaac, And not just that he would be born, but that he would himself grow and have offspring. And now take him and sacrifice him. Well, wait, God, either it's this or it's this. It can't be both. And the writer says he believed that the God who could raise the dead would do that. But God put Abraham in a place of impossibility and said, trust me, Well, wait a minute, two plus two can't equal four and six. And later on, he will, would require the same thing of Israel. God bound up the future of the people in David himself, in David's kingdom, and a seed of David, right? The Davidic covenant is the extending of the Abrahamic promise that God's kingdom will ultimately be established in an offspring of David. And God destroys that kingdom, and even more than that, he destroys David's house, and even more than that, he puts a curse on David's regal line. Mark this man down childless, Jehoiakim, right? Mark him down as childless. No son of his will ever sit on the throne of Israel again. Well, that was the line of the kings through David. God severed the regal line. And from that point forward, Israel had to believe that God would keep his promise to David when it was impossible for him to do what he had promised to David. How can he raise up a son of David to sit on the throne and reestablish David's house and throne and kingdom in a royal son of David when he's cut off that line and said no son from that line will ever sit on the throne? Israel had to believe God. And this is what you see in the prophets going all the way from the point of the exiles forward. God will keep his faithful mercies to David. God will do what he said. Well, how, God? How can that happen? And we know the way in which it happened in connection with Jesus himself. And I'm not going to go into that today. But this is when faith says, I trust that God is true and he will do what he said, even though I can't possibly figure out how it can work. If we can see our way through it, if we can navigate our way through it and say, okay, I'll just connect the dots this way. Oh, I see, this is how it's going to happen. That's not faith, that's sight. That's sight. Well, in the same way, Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh attested a kind of visionary faith, a vision that transcended natural order, natural expectation. And Jacob couldn't even begin to know how much that blessing would seem to be not going to come about in the way that that he pronounced that blessing. The writer of Hebrews understands because he stands on this end of that history. And he, he knows that his readers understand it as well, that they can look back and they can see how what Jacob proclaimed on these two boys, it was an amazing thing in the way that it played out. Totally unexpected. So again, these sons of Joseph were now sons of Jacob himself. And more than simply sons of Jacob, they were by virtue of this blessing, firstborn sons. You see this even now when Joshua makes the land allotment, when he starts partitioning up the land, the first allotment goes to Judah, but then it's Ephraim and Manasseh they stand at the forefront and again beyond even that Manasseh's own rights as firstborn that those rights were overturned in God giving the right of the firstborn the status of the firstborn to Ephraim and from that point forward you see in the scriptures and in Israel's life Ephraim did enjoy a preeminence in the Israelite community Ephraim was a prominent tribe within the covenant family, the covenant household of Israel. And not just in an abstract way, Ephraim had ruling preeminence in Israel until the scepter passed to Judah in the person of David. And that becomes a part of even the conflict between Ephraim and Judah when that happens. But remember, the blessing on Judah is the scepter will come to Judah and will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs. But the scepter will come to Judah. But ruling preeminence was associated with Ephraim. Samuel, who was the preeminent judge in Israel, was an Ephraimite. Where was the ark kept? Where was the tent located for many, many years? Wasn't it at Shiloh? Where was Shiloh in the hill country of Ephraim? Ephraim had a tribal preeminence through all of those years until the monarchy So this blessing begins to play out in that way. But I want to highlight two things that maybe we don't tend to think about so much that really seem to argue against the blessing that Jacob gives to these two boys, and particularly to Ephraim. The first is that Ephraim and Manasseh, but Ephraim certainly is at the center of the ten tribes that break away from David's house and kingdom so much so that the northern kingdom of Israel is often called by the name Ephraim. And I won't demonstrate that to you today, but as you go through and look at the prophets, when, when God is talking about the 10 tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, he refers to that kingdom often as Ephraim. That sub-kingdom with its capital um, in the north, that began with Jeroboam, that kingdom was reckoned under Ephraim. Well, what's the point of that? That the northern kingdom from Jeroboam forward was in rebellion against God, in rebellion against the covenant kingdom, which was David's remnant kingdom consisting of what? Judah and Benjamin. Ephraim became an idolatrous people. Building the altars at Dan and and at Bethel. Setting up their own priesthood. You see this over and over again. The sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused the sons of Israel to sin. Their idolatry, their rebellion against God. Ephraim was at the center of that. And if you read in the prophet Hosea, other places, but certainly in Hosea, you see God's condemnation of Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. I have given him over. If the northern kingdom was in rebellion against David's kingdom, Judah in the south, they also brought themselves under God's condemnation. You see in Isaiah chapter 7 that it it got so bad that Ephraim in the north formed an alliance with the Arameans to try to take Jerusalem and David's throne and put somebody else on the throne. That was the context in which the prophecy concerning Emmanuel comes forth. If you go back and read Isaiah chapter 7, Ephraim tried to not, it wasn't just that that the northern kingdom was rebellious against God. They tried to overthrow David's house and throne and kingdom by forming an alliance with a pagan people, the Arameans in the north. That's how bad it was. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jacob blessed Ephraim. I thought he was to have preeminence in the house of Israel. Ephraim, along with the whole house of Israel in this outworking of this process, was consigned to God's judgment and retribution. The destruction that came at the hand of the Assyrians in 721-722. But God's design for Ephraim, God's design for Israel in the north, looked beyond that judgment and desolation to a day of cleansing, a day of reconciliation, a day of ingathering, a day when Judah and Israel would again be reconciled. Think of Ezekiel 37 and the two sticks, one stick for Israel, one stick for Judah. Put them together. So will be the whole house of Israel. Think of Jeremiah 31 through 34. The writer of Hebrews understood this because he's already quoted Jeremiah 31, right? Behold, days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The whole point of Jeremiah 31 through 33 is that God says, I'm going to bring back together and reconcile the whole house of Israel. Ephraim and Judah, And I will do it in connection with the son of David, who is to come. God's design looked beyond Ephraim's present state, which Jacob himself wasn't even aware of. This was all in the future. And yet the absolute casting off of Ephraim wasn't to be the last word. Ephraim would yet again have status It would once again sit in a place of significance in God's covenant household, all of which was to be accomplished in connection with the messianic servant. So Ephraim, yes, would become an intractable covenant breaker, but Yahweh would triumph over that. The blessing, the prophetic blessing of Jacob would yet prevail. God would bring to pass the blessing he ordained for Ephraim, the blessing that Jacob gave voice to as his own act of faith. And there's a second thing, too, which I think probably even fewer people think of in terms of the difficulty, the struggle of how can this blessing really work itself out in the history of the of the nation of Israel. And that's the fact that these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the sons of an Egyptian mother, and not just an Egyptian mother, but the text points out more than once that Asana, the wife that Joseph takes, is the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of Ra, the chief priest of the temple at On. Heliopolis, the city of the sun, the lead, probably one of the leading, if not the leading city in lower Egypt, but the center for the worship of Ra, the sun god, the primary god in Egypt. These boys, their grandfather is the chief priest of the Ra cult. Their their grandfather is a pagan high priest in Egypt. One of the most significant, some people believe he led the priesthood in Southern Egypt. You say, well, you know, what's the big deal with that? Well, you couldn't imagine a more antithetical pedigree for those boys in terms of the covenant household, followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jacob now is bestowing not just a blessing, but he's taking as his own sons and bestowing the blessing of the firstborn on these two boys who have a pagan Egyptian pedigree. Can you imagine what these brothers thought about that? Reuben, the firstborn, was A son of Leah, a covenant matriarch. And he's and and now these boys are being supplanted. Simeon, Reuben is the two first sons, they're being supplanted by these kids who are, you know, offspring of an Egyptian high priest, a pagan worshiper of a false god. What an amazing thing. Jacob is supplanting his own covenant offspring, a son of the covenant matriarch with these boys. And I don't know necessarily in concluding, that, and and, and I, I tend to believe that Jacob really did not have a huge amount of insight into the significance of what he was doing. However, he was led to, bless these boys and take them as his own sons, we don't know. But somehow God had enabled him to glimpse some some semblance or some small piece of God's design for the future, and how these two boys sat in the middle of that. He blessed them by faith. And a faith that had to walk itself out for a long time, not just with Jacob, but with the nation. Because even in the immediate future, Egypt would become an oppressor, an enemy, an opposer of God and his covenant people. Right after this, Pharaoh dies that knew Joseph, Joseph dies, Jacob dies. Another Pharaoh arises who did not know Joseph. And now this period of persecution and opposition begins. And Egypt for a long time will be the epitome of opposition to God and His covenant people. So much so that Egypt becomes a, um, it, it personifies or it becomes a symbol of that opposition. Even in the book of Revelation where it talks about the city where the Messiah was killed. It calls it Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is called Egypt. Egypt epitomizes, under the name of Rahab, it epitomizes this this concept of, of a power that opposes God and his kingdom and his people. And here this preeminence has been afforded to these boys who stand in that Egyptian pedigree. But the point is this, even that hostile pagan nation, that nation that Israel saw as epitomizing their own enemies that opposed them as the covenant household, even that pagan nation of Egypt would finally succumb to God's intent to make Abraham the father of a multitude of families and peoples. Remember how we saw even with Esau? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and yet in the midst of that is God's purpose to even graft Esau back in. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 19, now this is in the context of an oracle concerning Egypt. At the time that Isaiah is writing, Egypt has had a very tenuous relationship with Israel, and Israel has tended to look to Egypt to help it, to defend it. But still, historically, two of the great enemies, and, and at this time, the greatest enemy would be Assyria, threatening, threatening Israel, particularly in the north. But Assyria will come against Jerusalem too. But Egypt has had this kind of quasi, sometimes Israel is looking for help from Egypt. Egypt is, is, is coming against them. But look at how in this prophecy against Egypt that God proclaims the way that this ends. How this turns around. Verse 18, and you can go back and read the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that. But it's this long condemnation of Egypt by God for the way they have opposed him and his people. Then in verse 18, it says, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those cities will be called the city of destruction. But in that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. A pillar to Yahweh near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them. Egypt. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and they will perform it. And he will strike Egypt striking but healing. So they will return to Yahweh and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. At this time that Isaiah is given this prophecy, Assyria is the most present and powerful and fearsome enemy of Israel. That's the context in which the Israelites are hearing these things through their prophet. They will come into Egypt, the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third party. The covenant house, the Abrahamic people, will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria. Together, they will be a blessing in the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. That was Israel's birthright. That was Israel's privilege. That was Israel's status. You are my people. You alone of all the people have I chosen. Abraham is my servant. You are my people. I am your God. That was an Abrahamic designation, the people of God. And he says, blessed is Egypt, my people. And to Syria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. That's an astonishing. Can you imagine how the people of Israel at that time would have taken this? What in the world are you saying, God? These people that are poised, and they will come through. They will come through and they will desolate the northern kingdom. They will scatter the northern ten tribes and they will come right up against Jerusalem, but God will deliver them. That's the Hezekiah episode, right? God will deliver Jerusalem at that time from the Assyrians. But this nation, this fierce, brutal, barbaric, terrifying nation, pagan nation that's coming against the covenant house, God calls them... His people, the work of my hands, a third party with the covenant house. The promise of God of a restoration, of a renewal. So Jacob found himself ending his life to get back to the to Jacob himself. He's dying. He knows he's going to die in Egypt. But he holds tightly to the promise of God and he says, Take my body and bury it in the cave of my forefathers. And Joseph will say the same thing. Joseph, Joseph's body will be embalmed and put in a sarcophagus. He won't be buried. And Joseph will wait, along with the whole house of Jacob, for the day when Yahweh will bring them out and restore them to the land. But dying in his bed, Jacob recognized that he was going to die in Egypt, and yet the inheritance God had promised to him would be his. Take me, bury me in the land. But God had also promised Jacob that he would make him the father of a family of peoples, a company of peoples. Jacob, just as was promised to Abraham, the name Abraham means father of many peoples. A vast multitude, as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. That was what God promised to Abraham. That was passed on to Isaac. That's been now passed on to Jacob. And so as Jacob now closes his eyes in death, he worships leaning on his staff or sitting at the head of his bed, depending on whether you take the Septuagint or the Hebrew text, but he dies in a state of faithful worship, seeing what is not yet seen. Symbolized in the fact that he charges first his one son, Joseph, and then all of his sons, take me back to the land God promised that I might rest in, the, in that place. But bound up in that is the implication that he also believes that God will make him this great nation. And so if you look through the prophets in Hosea, God says, Ephraim, I cannot give him up. I will not give him up. I will restore him. Go and read Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And yet the more I called them, the more they rebelled against me. They went after the Baals. But Ephraim, I cannot give him up. I love him. I will restore him. And then in Jeremiah, God says, not just that I'll restore Ephraim, but I will bind together Ephraim and Judah. The whole house of Israel will be restored. I will reconstitute the Abrahamic people and I will do that in the Messiah. The son of David, Jeremiah 31 through 33. Then you come to a place like Isaiah 11 and God says, yes, I will do this in the Messiah. He will be the one who will be a banner to bring in the remnant of Israel and the remnant of Jude and bring them together. But it's not enough. He will stand as a a rallying point for the nations. He will gather them all in. And in that way, Abraham will at last become the father of a multitude of people. An innumerable multitude of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And think of Revelation 5. Who can take the scroll and open it and loose it? Who who can read? Who who can take this and, and bring it to life? And John is weeping. He's crying out loudly. He says, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to take the scroll and to loose its seals. And you see this great worship scene as the lamb looking, you know, the lion of Judah looks like a lamb being slain and he takes the scroll and he breaks the seals and begins to open it up. And the whole throne scene erupts in this worship. Glory to God and to the Lamb. He has purchased for himself, purchased with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Glory, honor, dominion, power to God and to the Lamb. God has triumphed. And saints, as we gather today, you know, we're so far removed from all of that. We're nearly 4,000 years away from this blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph. And yet we are the heirs of that promise. The blessing that Jacob gave to Ephraim and Manasseh has worked itself out in a way that we ourselves are sharers in that. The promise of global reconciliation, global in gathering A people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Realized in Jesus in a way that was hidden for ages and generations, Paul says. This was a mystery. Yes, the prophets had said it. Yes, God had made it known. Yes, the faithfulness of these men testified of it. But in a mysterious way, in a way that wasn't clear. That the Abrahamic people would be a people defined by circumcision and covenant. But it would be bound up in the Messiah, not a circumcision in the flesh, a circumcision done by the spirit, not the Torah on tablets of stone, but the, tab- the Torah on human hearts, the Torah that is the Messiah himself, the true revealed full instruction of God, the word of God made flesh. We gather as Abraham's family That, in that way, having been circumcised, having been bound over to God's Torah in the Messiah. And that's why when we gather, and certainly when we gather around the table, we gather together as one, not as individuals. You hear me say it all the time. God's intent is, was never to save a bunch of individual people to go off to a place called heaven to have a wonderful eternity. And maybe somebody else might be in the picture, maybe not. I hope my wife will be there. I hope my cherished child will be there or whatever, my grandfather or whatever it happens to be. And maybe I'll go see Jesus at Christmas and Easter. That was never God's design. A new human family sharing in the life of God in the Messiah by the Spirit. That was the mystery hidden for ages and generations. A new human organism through which God would be all in all through which God would be all in all. That's why we come to the table together. And even the table itself testifies to that, because if we are partaking in the Messiah, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. If we are the living ones who share in the Messiah, then we are members of one another, right? Whether we like it, whether we agree with it, whether we practice it or not. If we are members of the Messiah, we are members of one another. So I'd like to give us this for our meditation, a familiar passage, but I hope that maybe we'll think about it in the context of what we've considered today. And I hope that as we keep doing this week after week after week, it's becoming more clear what Jesus meant when he said, all the scriptures testify of me. When Jacob blessed these grandsons and said they are mine in a significant profound way it was testifying of the one who would come but Paul in writing to the Ephesians and again this is our meditation for the table Paul says beginning in verse 11 and I want you to and I'm not going to go back and start at the beginning in chapter 2 but This beginning part of chapter two, we usually tend to treat in an individual way as a proof text for the fact that we don't earn our salvation, that it's a gift of God by faith. And Paul is not making that argument of individual salvation. He's talking about how God is forming a family which isn't tied to the Israelite works of life under Torah but the, the grace of God and the faith that binds all humans together. So this isn't a message of how individual people get saved. That's not the argument that Paul is making here. And you can tell that just by the way he begins verse 11. Therefore... He says in verse 10 or verse eight, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not as a result of Torah works that no one should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not an individualistic idea, but the forming of the people of God, the new covenant people of God. Therefore, Paul says, remember, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were, before the coming of the Messiah, you were at that time separate from the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise." having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made both. What both? Jew and Gentile. That's all that there is, Jew and Gentile. Gentile is just non-Jew, non-Abrahamic descendants. He has made both groups, in other words, the whole human race, he has made them one. He has made them one. Broke, broken down the barrier of the dividing wall, which was again Torah, it was the definition that singled out Israel. The dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is in the Law of Commandments, in ordinances, that in himself he might make two into one new man. Kainos, a new kind of human being. He doesn't just make them one in that they get along now. He's making a new human being. What kind of human being? A Jesus human being a Messiah human being, the forming of a new human race in him. Make the two into one new man, establishing peace and reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity, not just the enmity between men and God, but between covenant people and non-covenant people. And he came The Messiah came and he preached peace to you who were far away, you the Gentiles, you Ephesians, and peace to those who were near, the sons of Israel. For through him we both have our access in one spirit, through one spirit, to the Father. So then you, Ephesians, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with all of God's holy ones. You are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also, Gentiles, are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship that God gave to me by his grace for you, then you know that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. The mystery. The mystery that I wrote before to you in brief. What mystery? The mystery of the Messiah which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is that mystery that has been revealed? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, the covenant household, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the good news of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all of God's holy ones, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of the Messiah and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. These things were not clear, they were not revealed. But the God who created all things purposed those things and they were hidden and now the time has come for them to be disclosed in the Messiah and proclaimed in the whole world. In order that the manifold wisdom of God that is in the Messiah and the work of God in the Messiah in renewing and restoring all things in him, that that wisdom of God would now be made known through the church... Through this new community of those who become one new kind of man in the Messiah, that the church itself would be the testimony of the wisdom of God, a testimony that is made known to the rulers and the authorities, even in the heavenly places all in accordance with the eternal purpose which God has carried out in Messiah Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And so don't lose heart at what I'm suffering. Look at what I'm going through through that lens We want to be encouraged in our times, in the things that we're dealing with, in all of the uncertainty. We want to know what it is to live by faith. It's to look through these things and see the manifold wisdom of God in the church, unto the world, the wisdom of God in the Messiah and the purpose of God that is being worked out in him. Don't lose heart. These things are for your glory. And it's with this in mind, Paul says, that I find myself driven to my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would give to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would indeed dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all of God's saints, all of the holy ones, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of god to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be glory in the church in messiah jesus to all generations forever and ever That's what Paul means when he says the God who can do exceedingly abundantly all more than we ask or think. We can't even begin to imagine how exactly and and the glory of all of this work of God that takes everything into its grasp in the Messiah. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, it's never entered into the thoughts of a man. What God has prepared for those who love him and for his creation, that God would be all in all the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when we come to the table, saints, this is, what, this is what we're owning. This is what we're recognizing. This is what we are by faith holding on to and living in view of. So let me pray. And then I'd like for you to meditate on these things for a few minutes as we then come to the table. Father, these are grand and glorious things, and they're things that, that, that certainly blow our minds. They, 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 in a certain sense, even just escape beyond us. They are just too majestic, too glorious. But this is what it means that you are able to do it exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. And your purposes that have been realized in the Messiah, that were hidden, that were veiled the glory that has been revealed in those things that we ourselves are the living testimony of, not as individuals, but as the new creational body of Christ. Father, what a glorious privilege we have. This is our calling. This is what it means to be people of faith, to live in view of the triumph of our God in Jesus our Lord. And I pray as we come to the table that you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage us, that you would minister to our weakness, to our doubts, to our frailty, to all of the things in which we struggle. Set our feet as hinds feet on high places. Let us see afresh your glory in the face of the Messiah, our Lord, the one in whom we are found. As we come, Father, after a few moments of meditation, I pray that you would bless us in this great celebration, this great observance. Amen.